Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. You are listening to Dream Talk Radio. This is KOWS LP Occidental. I'm your host, Anne Hill, every Thursday from 9 to 10, talking about dreams, spirituality, culture, consciousness, and change. And how, as as a friend of mine put it this past weekend, how we make people better. (laughs) And so uh, to that end, on the phone with me today, I have a very special guest. Dr. Joan Boroshenko is a world-renowned expert in the mind-body connection. Her work has been foundational in an international healthcare revolution that recognizes the role of meaning and spirituality as an integral part of health and healing. Dr. Boroshenko is the author of many books, including the bestseller Mending the Body, Mending the Mind, uh, she is director of the Claritas Institute Interpersonal Mentor Training Program and host of the weekly internet radio show, Your Soul's Compass. Uh, Dr. Borshenko, thank you so much for being on Dream Talk Radio. Well, thank you, Anne. I'm delighted. I love to talk about dreams. Oh, that's excellent. Well, I had to, I, I was just so pleased when I saw your website a few months ago, and, I, and there was this whole thing about the wisdom of dreams right front and center along with everything else. So is that something you've been working with in, in terms of mind-body healing for a while? Oh, I've been working with it, yes, for the last 40 years or so, actually, in wow. the whole mind-body field. Yeah. And, you know, when I woke up this morning, I had an interesting dream that not only had to do with mind and body, but with the book that's in copy editing now. I have a new book coming out called Fried. Oh, great. One single word, we're all fried. Yeah. <laughs> and the subtitle is Why Why You Burn Out and How to Revive. Uh-huh. And I had a dream and realized oh, I should put this somehow in the book. And in the dream, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist monk mm. came and said, there's a good chance that the Dalai Lama will be arriving to visit you late this morning or early this afternoon. Wow. And the gist of the dream, without going into details, was that I was living in someone else's home, renting it, and the home was a mess. Mm. And I had to keep, there I was, I was trying to clean it up, clean it up, clean it up, and every room took so much, and I was calling for help. Um, from other people mm-hmm. to clean it out before His Holiness made an appearance. And I woke up and I said, yes, you know, this is, um, this is what a fried and busy life looks uh. like, that instead of being able to rise to an opportunity from a state of readiness where yeah. your whole inner house is in order, there's always this last-minute scrambling waiting <laughs> waiting true. for his holiness to arrive <sighs> and i thought yep it's a 
It's a spiritual problem, burnout really is. <sighs> and and so, empty in some ways, don't you think it's sort of a habitual problem? I mean, part of it, I, it seems to me, is our expectation that that's what we have to do. I mean, it's a dream, right? I could do anything. I could just think, oh, His Holiness is coming, and then instantly my house would be clean and I would be coming from a position of readiness. But our, but, but that frying, that burnout that you're talking about, makes it so that that's what the mode that we go into well, that's exactly right. And that mode is a separation from the source, yeah. or instead of flowing from the source, where um, we recognize that it's a dream, we interact with the dream, everything is possible in the dream. We come from the sense of, oh boy, I'm separate from the flow. Yeah. There's just me here, and I better gear up whatever energy I can from my poor, tired out adrenals mm-hmm. to make this work. Mm-hmm. Boy, I, you know, I had a dream about uh, 15 years ago when my kids were really small. I had a house full of kids, and in my dream, I'm bending down. There's a jigsaw puzzle that's just completely scattered all over the floor. (laughs) And I'm bending down and picking up each piece, and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I just know there's going to be pieces that I'm going to miss. There's going to be some stuck under the chairs and so on and so forth. And then I have this little moment in the dream of thinking, Hang on, this is a dream. I'll bet if I just stand up, all the pieces will f- will just come into the box. And I had this moment. I just stood up, and sure enough, there they all were in the box. <laughs> That's right. Those if moments we didn't don't realize ha- it was a dream. Yes, <laughs> they don't happen very often, but when they do, my gosh, that that just sustained me for for years. Really, that feeling of I can I can actually well, disengage. It's very empowering yeah. when you wake up in a dream. And part of you realizes, oh, this is just a dream, and then you bring your normal consciousness into the dream state yeah. and recognize that while you don't have total control over it, you have quite a lot of control over what happens. Yes. And I think that is a tremendous shift for people when that happens. And, you know, years ago, I became very interested in lucid dreaming. How uh-huh. do you wake up in, the, in your night dreams? Right. And how do you wake up in the longer dream of life? That's right. And, of course, I became aware of Stephen LaBerge's book uh, on lucid dreaming and his great research on lucid dreaming, and subsequently had a chance to have several conversations with him. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm very interested in from a mind-body perspective is this, that a lucid dream connects you to a level of consciousness that otherwise, you know, we only enter, most of us, quite rarely. And it's a level of consciousness where the body can really change. So, for example, I became lucid in a dream many years ago, and I was doing yoga in the dream. Mm. And I, you know, I'm like most people, I'm more flexible in some areas than in others. And I'm not flexible along the back side of my body and my hamstrings. Yeah. And so I, um, I'm doing Pashimottanasana oh, yes. in the dream, uh, sitting forward bent. Yes. And all of a sudden I, I get lucid and I say, well, it's a dream. I can be perfectly flexible. Oh, wow. And my body just feels so wonderful. It completely stretches into Pashimottanasana. Mm. And I can feel the sense of everything in balance and harmony in this very flexible position. And I woke up with a sense of that, 
And then mm-hmm. I went to do yoga, and I, I, you know, while not as perfect as in the dream state, mm-hmm. I was much more flexible than I had been before. Interesting. Then I met Stephen LaBerge, and we were talking about changing your body in the lucid dream yeah. state and the potential for healing. And he actually tells a story in one of his books about curing his back pain uh, like that in a lucid dream state. And while, you know, I left Harvard and and the laboratory before I could do an experiment with Mm -hmm. this, and it would be a difficult experiment to do because you have to train people to become lucid Mm -hmm. uh, in their dreams. And the question I would have addressed in that study is, to what degree uh, can we, in fact, heal our body and heal ourselves of, you know, a variety of things from muscular diseases? I was very interested. Well, can you get the immune system to right. perhaps go after cancer cells right. uh, in a dream state? And then, having taught them how to get around the uh, the blocks that cancer cells can put up to the immune system. They have ways of camouflaging themselves. Would that, would that removal of camouflage actually carry over into the waking state so that somebody could reject a tumor that way? Right. I still think that's wor- work really worth doing. <laughs> yes. Worth trying if you have a physical illness, because what is there to lose? That's exactly There's right. There's only the tremendous freedom yes. of becoming conscious in your dream state and more conscious in your life. And, you know, I was just talking with a gentleman just the other day who had uh, who had this dream, the very intense dream of his, where um, these, these beings from an alien planet sort of set up shop in this big building with all this this sort of central hallway and then the, all these hallways going off from it. And uh, he said the dream in this way that, that had this kind of fatalistic feeling to it. And he said, and then after this dream, I got a diagnosis and I was just sort of bracing for it. You know, this I, the, the, the image of these cells, these alien, these foreign cells in this central chamber with all of these vessels and ventricles heading back from it, I just thought, oh, it's leukemia. And sure enough, that that was his diagnosis. And I said, well, you know, the good news is that here they have presented themselves. All those, those malignant cells have presented themselves in dream form. They've actually, you've been interacting with them. You know, that's an invitation for further interaction. Well, it's very interesting. Um, Jung... Jung talked a lot about the diagnosis of illness in the dream state. Mm-hmm. And I had an experience, this was oh, a good 25 years ago. I had had a couple of breast biopsies, mm-hmm. which were um, benign conditions, it yeah. turned out, thank- thankfully. Goodness. Then I had a dream, it was not a lucid dream, just a vivid uh, regular dream, that there was a little vial of nitroglycerin mm. in the pocket of a blazer above my left breast. Mm. And when I realized something was about it was nitroglycerin, it could explode. Right. Somehow I got to a hospital and a nurse poured the nitroglycerin down the drain wow. um, and washed it away. And when I woke up, I could still feel the heat from the vial of nitroglycerin right over the left breast. And I thought to myself, 
that sounds like the wisdom of the body. Yes. And because I knew a breast surgeon from the two prior biopsies mm-hmm. and was thought to be high risk, I went and I said, look, I had this dream and I want you to check me out. And even though I was running a mind-body clinic at Harvard Medical School, you know, didn't yeah. qualify as your basic nutcase, right. <laughs> or maybe in his mind yeah. I did. <laughs> He said, it's ridiculous. You just have an anxiety disorder. This is crazy thinking, and there's nothing wrong with you. So I went off, and three years passed, and I was having an annual mammogram. Mm -hmm. And on the third year, a medical resident radiologist who was looking at my mammogram films said, has anybody told you that there is a nest of calcifications in your left breast and it's been there for three years? Oh, my goodness. And I said, no, nobody ever mentioned it. And he said, well, it's, it's most likely nothing, but it could, in fact, be an early ca- cancer. And he, he said, um, do you want to you know, have it biopsied? And normally, you know, I have to say, Anne, I'm kind of a doctor avoider. Yes. <laughs> But because of the dream, I said, you know, I think we really better look it over. Mm -hmm. And it was great to be at Harvard at that time because the great breast surgeon, Susan Love, was there. And and, um, by then, I'd become friends with Susan. Mm -hmm. So she did the surgery. And indeed, it was precancerous cells right on the verge of turning cancerous. Oh, my goodness. And so she got them out of there. And I thought, well, there's the nitroglycerin That's poured right. down the, the drain before it could explode right. in a full-blown cancer. Right. My goodness. We're talking so with Dr. There is, a, there is a wisdom of the body, but yes. you know, your listeners have to be careful because That's right. you really can get anxious over it and um, you know, end, up, end up being nervous over things that don't warrant being nervous, but... A dream that's very vivid that stays with you, where you can feel something in your body afterwards, yeah. or it's repetitive. Those for me would be cues to check it out. That's right. We're talking with Dr. Joan Borsenko this morning on Dream Talk Radio. Uh, Dr. Borsenko, you can uh, re- you can see all of her books and uh, get in touch with her in terms of workshops and all of her lecturing at joanborsenko.com. Um, it, on the subject of, of cancer and dreams, one of the things that I was, a friend of mine used to be the uh, doctor at a, a student health center at one of the UC uh, campuses here in California. And she went into, you know, she explained to me how she was trying to describe to these kids, these young adults going to college, the value of sleep. And one of the things that she said that really struck me sort of along the lines of dreams of cancer and that sort of thing is, uh, you know, all of the the functions, the physiological functions of ours that reset and recalibrate over sleep. And one of those is this whole, the way that the bloodstream has of finding aberrant cells or abnormal cells surrounding them and then flushing them away. That's mm-hmm. one of the things that, that that happens during sleep. And so, you know, you can, stress actually acts as a, as a way to, um, to inhibit our immune system. And one of those ways that it inhibits it is it prevents us from doing the deep resting that allows our bodies to just deal with that stuff before it gets to be, you know, a full-blown condition. 
Yes, it's absolutely right. Um, We know now how important sleep is physiologically. So many things happen. Like during sleep, the body puts out growth hormone, Mm. and growth hormone helps to repair the immune system and other systems of the body while you sleep. So that if you don't sleep enough, um, there's chronic wear and tear. And some of your bodily functions, including immunity, just don't work as well as they would have. Mm -hmm. And because stress also inhibits the immune system directly, you know, you release a lot of cortisol, which is an immuno-inhibitory hormone, uh, a lot of adrenaline, and then there are other um, really very elegant systems through which stress inhibits immunity. You really get a one-two punch if you're missing out on sleep as well. Yes. And we know we're also a sleep-deprived nation because we're so busy. Mm -hmm. Well, you must deal with that some in your new book, Fried. The the sleep deprivation is just a killer. Yes, it's really silly. (laughs) It's really silly, and I'm one of those people. I'm like a little kid. I know all this, and I have (laughs) to be dragged to bed every night because um, there's so much that excites me. There's so many interesting things to do that... My mother used to say, oh, you're holding your eyelids open with toothpicks just so that you can stay up later. And, well, Anne, I'm still that way. Well, you know, that's what makes a good healer. when he, Somebody who's, who's got feet of clay like the rest of us. So, you know, I, I think if, if each of us were perfect yogis or yoginis and we, we ate just the right foods, we'd be insufferable and nobody would want to listen to us. So... That's probably true. I'm sure that's true. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things, I have a great Facebook group, and your listeners might be interested in that. Oh, great. Uh, We have really in-depth conversations about all kinds of great stuff, you know, from from dreams to grief to, you know, I've had a lot of uh, deaths in my family this year to all kinds of things, and it's a place where we can be real with each other and then also get a spiritual perspective yeah. on what goes on in our daily lives. So if they just go to Joan Borisenko on Facebook, they'll have two choices. Mm-hmm. And one of them is my profile page, which is full, where, where yeah. you ask to be a friend, right. so forget that. Yeah. But my fan page is the place to go. That's where all the conversations happen. And for me, it's great fun. In fact, my mm. Facebook friends were a very big part of writing Fried. Oh, great. Yeah, I was just on that Facebook page this morning. It did look like a very vibrant conversation, not not like some pages where there's just one person sort of, you know, saying what they're doing. But this was a really active conversation with people. It seemed very, yes, very nice. Yes, it's always very active. And, yeah. um, you know, it depends what we're, what we're discussing the last two days. We're actually discussing the um, the Carol Carol King James Taylor concert uh-huh. because we went to it last night, uh-huh. and I'll tell you that was a dreamlike experience. Was it? Because so many of the people at that con at that concert were people who spent their youth during um, the late sixties, seventies. Uh, early 80s when that music of Carol King and James Taylor was really the music of a generation. And it made you go back in your mind to think about your life, to think about the various phases of your life. 
Uh, and it was, you realize life passes in a flash. Uh, the Tibetan Buddhists, of course, say, mm-hmm. well, it's a dream, and the only difference between the dream of life and night dreams is that the dream, the dream that we consider life seems to be more stable, and we come back to it. The night mm-hmm. dreams are, are, you know, more, more fleeting right. and uh, less stable in nature. But it made me think, what a dream of life yes. I've had. And just in terms of our conversation about health and dreams, Anne, there's a wonderful professor of psychology at Harvard, an old old friend of mine, Mm -hmm. colleague of mine, uh, Ellen Langer. Okay. And she did something very interesting. A number of years ago, she did an experiment, and she invited men in their 70s to spend the weekend in, I think it was a monastery in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And she had had cars brought in from 20 years before and gotten tapes of, of um, television shows that were popular 20 years mm. before and current events like what was going on at that time. Yes. And when she had two groups, one was a group of men who immersed themselves in that, in other words, they spoke of current events as if they were really happening at yeah. that moment. And then another group who, you know, just knew, well, I'm here, but it's not real. Uh, but the group who, in my words, could dream into it and imagine that there they were, mm-hmm. had a tremendous improvement in their health. It was kind uh, of, they got younger. Wow. They got more flexible. They had better well-being. And I do think that the the way that we the way that we dream our life yes. affects our body. So even being in the concert last night, mm-hmm. I could I could feel that um, sense of what it was like in my body, what it was like in my life thirty or forty years ago. Isn't that wonderful? It really does. And, and, you know, there's probably some cellular memory of being that youthful and free or, you know, whatever that that memory is that that just gets released into into your bloodstream or whatever from going from being there in that concert. Well, absolutely. And so, you know, you think about what's the effect of of attitude um, on your health or what's the effect of attitude on your life? Yeah. If your view of life, the dream you have of life, is is uh, inherently pessimistic, <laughs> yes, uh, in terms of oh things, you know, I can never do anything right. Um, things are bad; they'll never get better. Having that dream of life affects your body very negatively, and of course, it affects your ability to create a life that's really the positive life that you want to live. And so it's so important, this whole aspect of what it is that we dream Mm -hmm. in our daily life. Uh, No, I I found a a wonderful quote by Don Miguel Ruiz, who, by the way, I knew he was a, a Toltec shaman. I didn't realize that he was a physician as well. Oh, is that right? But... The, the quote really had to do with, you know, the dream of life is up to you. Um, you can dream a life of hell on earth, or you can dream a life of heaven on earth. Yeah. And I personally would prefer to dream a life of heaven on earth. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm not meaning to have cheap optimism here, mm-hmm. like always saying everything's perfect when right. it isn't. But really dreaming into what is the life that I want? And then here's the important part, taking the steps so that that can actually come to be, and then also paying attention to what's unfolding. Because just as in a lucid dream, sometimes you can control the whole subject matter of the dream, but more often, at least in my own experience, you're co-creating the dream. It has a flow. Mm-hmm. And then you enter into it, and um, you, you shape that flow in some way. And that, of course, is what's exciting, that, um, you know, <laughs> I asked a question on Facebook, are you the dreamer, or is the dreamer dreaming you? <laughs> and it's some of both, I think. I think so. And it's, uh, you know, I think the, the, the most, it's one of the most powerful practices, really, to just start where you are and to start remembering your dreams and start like you, you, you have this wonderful outline on your website, you know, just write, have a journal and just write the date at the top of the page. And, and you just start from these very small little steps and just remembering dreams, maybe using learning the if it were my dream approach or talking to a friend about dreams. And then at a certain point, something sort of clicks and you think, hang on, I can work on these dreams, but actually everything that I do, I can look at as though it were a dream. My, I have a, right. a good friend who's a therapist, and she's always saying, okay, well, let's look at this situation you just described to me. If this were a dream, and it is, <laughs> you know, what, how, what, would, what would I do with it if it were a dream? And, and just taking that step back, I think, is so tremendously powerful in terms of increasing our awareness of who we are, what we have to bring to our lives, um, and and as you say, how much are we the dreamer dreaming the dream, and how much is the dream dreaming us? Well, and, that's the question, isn't it? And, uh, you know, I, I have a, a friend who's a Jungian analyst and works quite a lot with dreams. Yeah. And her approach, and, and the approach of, you know, different dream workers is different, yeah. but her approach and the approach of many people like Jeremy Taylor, who mm-hmm. does such wonderful dream work, is that every character in a dream really represents a part of yourself. That's right. And if you carry that over into daily life, you begin to realize it's true because it's very rare that we actually see a person for who they are. Yes. We see a person in terms of our own projections, our own judgments, our own opinions yep. about who they are. And in a very real sense, every character in your life is like a character in your dream. And if you take that stance to say, all right, that person in my life that I'm not getting along with, what part of me do they represent? Yeah. Is there Is there a a part of me that I dislike that I'm projecting on that person, for example? Yes. And it helps you to let go of judgment. Yes. And to approach life in a much more gentle, Mm -hmm. loving, and insightful way where it's not like you brush conflict under the rug, but you're less afraid of it because Mm -hmm. you realize you're working as you work out a conflict with another person you're working out something deep within your own soul. Yes. 
Yes, and it, every time you have a conflict, you don't have to go straight to, I'm I'm not worthy, or I I messed up, my life is terrible. It's just, oh, I had this dream, right. Okay, so next time I can do X instead, or this is how I can face it now. Be- it takes it out That's of right. the... That's right, it yeah. simply becomes information, yeah. um, and... It allows you to be curious about your life yes. instead of upset about your life. Yes. <laughs> That's a big difference. It's a very big difference. You're absolutely right. We're talking with Dr. Joan Borshenko this morning on Dream Talk Radio. Um, yes, I, you know, I, in fact, I've just written a, an article on the Huffington Post a little bit ago about curiosity and how, uh, you know, in the workshop world, there's 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 a lot of you can do this and you can do that and there's techniques and stuff but to me I'm really looking for somebody who's talking about cultivating curiosity and just staying curious okay that worked for a little bit and now it doesn't work anymore oh that's interesting you know what's that about that that whole that 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 just open questioning attitude I think is is really fundamental to uh, to long-term change in our lives yeah, I can't agree with you further because life is continuously unfolding. Mm-hmm. It emerges newly moment by moment. Yeah. And what seemed like it was <clears throat> hewn in stone last week um, will remain that way, if that's your opinion of it. Yeah. But it may be that it's changed completely this week. Mm-hmm. So that open attitude is important. Yes. And also, just in terms of the... You know, the whole idea of workshops, or the whole idea of learning something from someone else, we can learn, I think it's important because we learn a framework, Yeah. but that's it, because yes. every person is an individual, right. and how you work with that framework is ultimately yours. Does yeah. it work for you? Does it not work for you? When does it work for you? Um, you know, one of the other things that I like about Buddhist philosophy is that the the Buddha told his disciples to experiment. Yeah. He said, don't believe a thing that I say. <laughs> Just, you know, take it as an experiment. Be curious. That's right. See what happens. Like, uh, if you decide to do an experiment with compassion, the question is, do you feel better when you're angry or when you're compassionate? Mm-hmm. So... If you actually begin to work with that and look at it, you say, well, maybe you say, well, gee, anger really feels good under certain circumstances because it helps me feel empowered. It helps me make a boundary. Mm -hmm. But then I realize that at a certain point, it starts to eat me alive. Right. So you get get a sense of it. You get a sense of what is that point when uh, anger no longer serves me. Yeah. And the same with compassion. You think, well, compassion is good. But at what point does it turn into enabling? At Mm -hmm. what point am Mm -hmm. I giving up my own uh, self? And when is compassion uh, uh, truly a clear act of loving kindness Mm -hmm. that comes from my best self and, you know, not my guilt or my desire? And so even a statement like it's good to be compassionate. Yeah. Uh, or bad to be angry, when you're curious about it, you say, well, wait a minute, there are so many shades of this. And if I really inquire deeply into it with curiosity, then I'll learn a lot. Yes. 
Really important. I mean, those are questions for a lifetime, first of all. I don't think we get the answers to how how much how where's the line between compassion and enabling. We don't get that in a single sitting. That's something that we have to sort of bump up against for years in some cases. Absolutely for years. Yeah. And so <laughs> you know, I remember being a young person Anne, and I'd go to a workshop and I'd say, well, that's it. Now I've got the secret of life. Oh, my God, I do. (laughs) Now I know everything. This is how it works. um, You know, then, of course, you you bump up against yourself coming and going. And and you have to pick yourself up and you think, oh, it wasn't that easy. That's right. But the idea is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's right. But to say, oh, it's not that easy. Well, yeah. that's interesting. That's right. What, what, what have I discovered yes. through this process? Yes. <laughs> and it is. Life is, um, life, like Raina Maria Rilke said in his very famous off-sided quote, is um, it's not like you get the answer to your questions, but you live, as you live, the answers start to reveal themselves through the yes. process of life itself. Yes, that's so true. Uh, I often think that uh, probably nobody would sign up for this workshop, but a workshop titled something like The Art of Getting Up Again, that kind of would kind of encapsulate life. <laughs> okay. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I'm down. Now I'm going to get up <laughs> you know, again. I frequently give, not frequently, a couple times a year, I give a workshop with my husband called Your Soul's Compass, mm-hmm. because we wrote a book called Your Soul's Compass. Oh, and the subtitle is What is Spiritual Guidance? Uh-huh. And so we interviewed 27 sages from a variety of religious, um, uh, spiritual, shamanic traditions. Yeah. We tried to get a male and a female of each, like a male and a female rabbi. Mm-hmm. We couldn't get the male and the female Catholic priest. Oh, well. But we get a wonderful male Catholic priest whose father, Thomas Keating, oh. who's done so much bringing centering prayer, yes. the, you know, the contemplative aspect right. back into Catholicism. And then a number of female Episcopal priests. Mm-hmm. Then we interviewed shamans and Quakers mm-hmm. and medical intuitives, a whole yeah. lineup of very interesting people about guidance. What is what is guidance? What is it to follow your guidance? Yeah. And it's not like here are the ten steps that will enable you always to hear that inner voice. Right. Because the biggest question is how do you tell the difference between the voice of your ego Mm -hmm. and the voice of your larger self? That's right. It's not so easy to tell the difference. Yeah. And, you know, I I think none of us is capable of paying such exquisite attention all the time that we get, you know, even a few percent of the guidance that comes. So the whole thing becomes an experimental way of living. And it's fascinating giving these workshops because people, I think people in our culture were used to, well, you know, the seven steps to this and the right. ten steps to that. Right. And when we finish with them, we say, well, you're probably much more confused than when you start because <laughs> there are no steps. Yeah. <laughs> it's a continuing revelation that you're aware of and you experiment with. Yes, yes. 
the you know the interesting thing to me for the uh, I'd be curious because I know you do a lot of uh, you speak a lot and do a lot of workshops in both a kind of a, a personal uh, venue and also in for businesses and organizations. And one of the things that is continually surprising to me, I guess because of my own preconceptions, is how much the business community is really hungry for that exact thing. They've had the 10 steps to this and the seven steps to that forever. And, you know, they're still back to square one at a certain point. So there's this real hunger for, okay, what's, what is a sustainable model? What is a, a process that will continue and continue to yield benefits? It's such an interesting question, isn't it? Um, It's almost counterintuitive to most people to realize that corporations are quite interested in this. They're very... Um, That's been... I read read an interesting book a couple of years ago by a journalist, Daniel Pink. Uh And the title of Daniel's book is A Whole New Mind. And it's really a book about developing right brain skills that go along with your left brain skills. Because... In my own way of thinking about guidance and your own inner wisdom and your own inner voice, you can't know it in the linear left-brain logical way that we're used to. Um, We tap into a larger way of knowing through pattern recognition, through, through things that we can't put into words that people call their intuition or... You know, in businesses, they would call it their gut. They just know it in their guts, but they don't know how they know. That's right. And Daniel Pink's point of view was, we need to learn more right-brain skills because we're such a left-brain culture and because information has become cheap, Anne. I mean, you can Google anything. Anything. You can become, you know, quite conversant with practically anything from nuclear physics to the mysticism of senoid dreamers or Mm -hmm. whatever, Mm -hmm. just through Googling. But what you cannot Google is the capacity for synthesis, Mm -hmm. for pattern recognition, to see how disparate elements can come together in a whole new way and create something that's truly novel. And that's what businesses really need. Because I think it was Einstein's famous quote, that you can't solve uh, a problem with the same um, mind that created it. That's right. You have to go to a different place. That's right. And so I think that's where dreams come in, too. Mm. They take us right out of the rational. They're so inherently irrational while you're having That's right. All kinds of, like, weird things like red camels cross the dreamscape. Yes. That don't seem at all surprising at the moment. Yes. But later on... Uh, when seen from a left-brain perspective, contain a wisdom that we could not otherwise access. I don't know, Anne, maybe we should be doing dream groups for corporations. (laughs) Well, I did one once. Actually, it was fascinating. It was a bunch of project managers for this very large medical corporation. And uh, it it was just, I mean, it was a brilliant, I'm so happy that they were able to do that because, you know, all of the issues with a lot of interpersonal things, I'm not good enough for this job, but yet I'm here. I mean, it all showed up in dreams. And I mean, the only thing I would say is that don't have the supervisor in the same group. <laughs> Because there's a little I, bit. I'm of, sorry, I didn't hear oh, that. The, don't don't have the supervisor as part of the same dream group. Oh, as absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know, but uh, it, it was really insightful to, for people. Absolutely. And, you know, the, that this is the, the interesting thing, that when you have a dream and you, or you're telling your dream in a group, you actually have to have a trusting group. That's right. Because much more about you is revealed than you yourself might have initially seen in that yeah. dream. Yep. Yeah, and and I think that it takes a pretty forward-thinking corporate culture to understand that your point about there's a, the need for synthesis, that that's really, that's the front and center issue that they need to be addressing. I mean, skill sets, you can help people develop uh, communication skills and whatnot, but this whole idea of projection of the other and what part of my dream is this person that I'm having this conflict with? That is really what, you know, what Einstein was referring to. You have to have a whole different way. You, you, you have to have a different way of thinking than the, than the thinking that created the problem. Absolutely. Gosh, Ann, I'm having so much fun. We're definitely <laughs> on the same page here. Oh, man, I love this show so much. I just love yeah, talking to you. I bet with, you do. Yeah. We are talking with Dr. Joan Borshenko here on Dream Talk Radio this morning. You can find out more about her writing and workshops and all sorts of things at Joan Borshenko, and I will spell that, J-O-A-N-B-O-R-Y-S-E-N-K-O.com. And also, she's got a very lively Facebook page that you can uh, tap into. You just like it, and then suddenly you're part of a big conversation. So one of the things that I ask uh, everybody who's on the show who travels widely is what are you seeing? Because uh, one of my interests is in uh, how dreams play out in the broader culture, where we are now in, as individuals has something, has some resonance with where we are as a culture. And so I, I'm always just asking people, what do you see out there? Are there new questions that people are asking you now? Do you see new presentations of old problems, or, or are they just new problems altogether? What's, what struck you as curious about, about your, in your travels lately? What, a, what an interesting question. Um, what, I, what I'm seeing most in my travels at this point uh, and first of all, I realize that the people I see in my travels are not a representative oh, sample, sure. Anne, yeah, because uh, they wouldn't be coming to workshops on consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> but what I what I am seeing is, you know, here we are. There's so much talk about 2012 and oh, the yes. end of an eon and all kinds of scatological thinking right. and all of that. Uh, I see people who are incredibly hopeful of being part of a larger shift Mm -hmm. and who are really getting out there to do that in a variety of ways, really getting out there to help other people, uh, really, you know, really getting involved in whatever way they can Mm -hmm. and being part of the shift. And then I also see people who've really gotten themselves stuck in very fearful thinking Mm -hmm. and well that's it you know we've got global warming there are too many people on the earth pretty soon we'll all starve to death etc etc so i suppose what i'm saying is that i see more of a polarization Hmm. than i used to see even within a group that is interested in general in questions of consciousness 
And maybe that's not surprising because in uncertain and unstable times, um, you tend to see polarization. That's yeah. the way that we deal with change. <laughs> yes. We assume a position and uh, try to get some ground back under our feet right. by standing in that position, even if the position is the world is coming to an end. Um, do you agree with me? Right. So I, I do find that fascinating. And, you know, once again, my point of view is... Uh, you know, we we are in that time between no longer and not yet. Mm-hmm. Globally, right. we're in a rite of passage. Yeah. So we've separated from what was. The future that might be has not yet emerged. So you know, where where at sea? There's no ground underneath our feet. We're in the yeah. great unknown. Yeah. And I think oftentimes what what makes change less transformational than it could be is that people get scared when there's no ground under their feet. Mm -hmm. So we try for premature closure. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to make sure, well, I don't know, I'll I'll do this or I'll do that. Any of it is better than simply hanging out in the unknown. So I suppose I'm a kind of trickster because my message is usually we're in the unknown. And this is where... The greatest knowing and the greatest chance for transformation individually and as a culture comes. So we need to stay in the unknown. Um, But what I am noticing, again, is people's great fear of the unknown at every level. Boy, that, you know, I just feel, I was born in 1962 and I feel like my entire lifetime has been that that not that not yet you know the in that in between stage i mean i'm just thinking about the that uh, song from hair this is the dawning of the age of aquarius but it never quite dawns it's like everything's quite somehow not quite gelled yet <laughs> like that's right i i really i mean i i have nothing but sympathy for people who want premature closure and they're just sick of it because it's interminable and it's very uncomfortable it is. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> There's no question about it. And yet, and that's why yeah. I think, just intuitively, my work over the last ten years or so, uh, maybe always my work has been: how do we stay comfortable in yeah. times of uncertainty? That's right. Yes. Um, actually, what my favorite book about that is Pema Chodron's book that the American Buddhist teacher oh, yes. has a wonderful book called Comfortable with Uncertainty. That's a great one. And it's one. 108 very small um, teachings, maybe yeah. a page or two, which is great because when you're feeling frightened and uncertain, you need something short. That's right. And my thought was, well, you know, I'm not Pema Chodron. Um, I don't represent a particular tradition other than the fact that I'm, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm a psychologist. I'm just a a regular old person. I think probably that's what people like most about my teachings, Mm -hmm. Um, just a regular old person. And like everybody else, I'm feeling the uncertainty. So my work has really involved how do we find our own inner strength? Yes. How do we find our own resilience? How do we move from, okay, I may or may not be able to control the external situation, yeah. but finding the strength to try 
to try to shift the external situation when you can, and yet um, allowing yourself to float a bit if you can't. And that's on my last book, actually, mm-hmm. um, that's out now, my current book, I okay. should say, is called It's Not the End of the World. <laughs> and the subtitle of that is Developing Resilience in Times of Change. Yes. And I did try to make it a bit Pema Chodron-like uh-huh. in that <laughs> the chapters are very short. Yeah. They're very practical. Uh, and there's a lot of take-home there about what we can do to be able to, getting back to the beginning of our conversation, mm-hmm. uh, dream uh, dream a dream that's not a nightmare yes. in these times of change. Yes. Very important. It, it, because really, it, it, is, it is not the end of the world. Whether you're go, going, wh- you know, whatever side of the spectrum of those kind of uh, cultural fantasies you're on, it's really not. It's going to be another day. Well, that's right. And uh, it, it is. Yeah. It's the, the earth is going to go on. Yes. And it's gone on for a long time. And it will continue to go it on. It sure will. I, I remember uh, January 1st, 2000, after all of the Y2K hoopla, things are going to stop, the power grid is going to go off, your computers are going to die, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I remember waking up early in the morning, and the first thing I heard was a bird singing outside, and then I heard the refrigerator go on. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> okay, it's another day. It's simply another day. That's right. <laughs> Well, on the on the topic, Buddhism has come up more than once, and I've, uh, I I just at, out of the blue had this dream a couple nights ago. I, maybe I'll just share it with you since it has to do with that. I had this dream that I was up in Berkeley, or down in Berkeley, I guess. I'm a little north of there. And uh, there was a man who owned uh, like a Japanese import shop, and he had heard about this Buddhist scripture that had been sort of stashed in some family's attic for generations. And he managed to to get it, you know, from them, to buy it from them. And he was bringing it to his shop, and I was helping him bring it into the garden. And this was the most amazing thing. It was actually carved on a long slab of wood. It looked like about a six-foot long by about two-foot wide and maybe six inches thick slab of redwood. And it was all, you know, it had the... Um, the meanderings of the bark on the outside, and and it, and the scripture was was written in this teeny little meandering script, the entire length of this of this long piece of of wood. And it, when you look at it, you wouldn't think that there was anything on it, but if you look closely, there's it, lines of just impeccably carved little script. And so that I was the last image in this dream is this guy sitting in front of it in his garden and you wouldn't think that he would know this really ancient form of of Japanese script but not only he takes a line and he starts reading it but actually he starts singing it that it's Mm. something that that is that is spoken by singing not just by reading out loud it was the most beautiful little image in the garden this old Japanese man singing this ancient scripture Oh, what a beautiful dream. <laughs> I woke up. What and a beautiful dream. Isn't that gorgeous? Yes, and there he is. He's singing the wisdom Sing. of nature in the garden. Yes, yes, yes. 
So there's, you know, um, <laughs> sometimes there's a lot of levels of wisdom there. Yeah. How did how did you feel? How did that dream feel in your body when you woke up, Anne? Oh, you know, it was like this moment of serendipity. Sometimes you just have this moment, and everything is just right. Yeah. Just out of the blue, for no particular purpose. It's not like I was doing anything, you know, holy or sacred the day before. Or it, it would just, but these moments just come. So that's how it felt like. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. What a beautiful dream. Dreams like that are a gift. Yes. And, you know, the thing is, uh, we all have so many dreams, four to five a night. Yes. And, you know, for a lot of people, and myself included, when I'm busy, I may not remember any at all. Mm -hmm. But if I make the intention to remember and take out my dream journal, put the date of the next morning in there, and get ready to um, to write, or when I wake up, just to put down the, a snappy title to mm-hmm. whatever dream snippet I can recall, then, then all of a sudden I start to become aware of my dreams, and beautiful ones like yes. that. Yeah. You realize they're happening, all these little gifts, little gems are there for you. Just all and, the time. Uh, and yeah. it's, it's really wonderful when when you catch one. Yes, it certainly is. And you're absolutely right. It just takes those small little steps. Just those small, okay, I'm, I'm going to open my journal and I'm going to write tomorrow's date on there. And then I'm just going to write down, I'm, I'm going to remember a dream. That's and, right. Yeah, and, and then I just think what, what um, I'm sure you've, you've talked with your listeners uh, before about this, uh, it you know sometimes you start to remember dreams right away, other times it can take a few weeks, but if you just persist sooner or later, you will start to remember your dreams. Yes, and that always is surprising to people who swear to me, I never remember my dreams. Yes. I don't dream. Right. And of course we know, of course, everybody dreams. Everybody dreams. And it's it's quite remarkable how important intention is. Yes. Um, intention is about 95% of recalling your dreams. Mm-hmm. Intention and just and the, the art of getting up again. You know, if you don't remember your dreams tomorrow, then just try the, again tomorrow night. That's right. <laughs> just, you know, dreams respect plodding effort. They really do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. They applaud our plotting efforts. <laughs> they do. They <laughs> applaud it. Absolutely. We're rewarded. Exactly. Well, Joan Borisenko, thank you so much for coming on the air. It was really a pleasure talking with you this morning. I wonder. And I have to say that I do a lot of radio shows, and I don't think I've enjoyed one this much and as long as I can remember. Oh, thank you so much. That's wonderful. Glad to glad to be of service, and and thank you so much for for your service for all the work that you do in the world. I'm wondering if you have any closing thoughts or things that you would like to point our listeners in the direction of. Well, you know, one thing I would like to point out is that anyone who is interested in soul care, yes. whether you're an acupuncturist or a physician or a massage therapist or a nurse, uh, an herbalist, whatever. There's a whole art to soul care, and and that's been my deepest interest Mm -hmm. over all these years. 
and I'm starting a new six-month certificate program called Soul Care in Healthcare. Oh, great. It starts at the end of October. It's a five-day intensive at the Omega Conference oh, Center yeah. in New York. And then there are meetings by phone twice a month for the next six months. And then in May 2011, the final five-day. And my dream here is to get a whole core of people trained in soul care mm. to be there throughout our medical and health care system. Wonderful. May it be so. May it be so. That's right. Uh, you have been listening to Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Ann Hill, every, mor- every Thursday morning from 9 to 10 here on KOWS LP Occidental. The podcast for this show will be up in a couple weeks. I'm a, I'm a few weeks uh, behind the eight ball on getting them up there, but it will be up there. And again, uh, thank you so much, Joan Borsenko, for being with us this morning. You're very welcome, Anne. All right. I love Occidental. Very oh, cool yes. Place. It's a wonderful little town. <laughs> okay. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, that was so much fun. That was Joan Borsenko. Uh, you can find out more about her on her Facebook page, and you can also go to joanborsenko.com to find out more about her uh, soul care training and all the other great stuff she does. That ends this week's Dream Talk radio show podcast. Thanks for listening, and remember to tune in every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. at www.kows.fm. This is Ann Hill, and I'll see you again next week.